This episode is brought to you by mParticle, the growth API. mParticle is the best way to connect your customer data to all the leading marketing and measurement partners. And you need those partners to run and grow your business in a multi-screen world. It's a data platform that's trusted by both marketers and engineers alike at forward-thinking brands like Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, Postmates, Venmo, and many others. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can help modernize your data infrastructure and accelerate growth. This podcast is also sponsored by GoCD, an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server by ThoughtWorks. GoCD gives you complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the person who is now the top reporter in tech now that John Markoff has retired. But in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is John Markoff, a journalist who for more than 29 years has covered technology for the New York Times. He is also one of my heroes, and I only have like three, I think, in my life. In December, he announced he would retire from the Times. He's also the author of several books, including Cyberpunk, Takedown, and Machines of Loving Grace. John is an old friend of mine also, and I'm so excited to talk to him. John, how are you doing? Good. I think we're even neighbors as well. Are we? I believe we are. But the Times is here where we're working. No, in the Castro. Oh, my God. Why don't we hang out? I I don't don't know know why. Honestly, I don't know. Well, now you have all this free time, and I don't. (laughs) I think that'll be great. So let's, uh, I don't know where to start. We have, when did we meet? I don't even remember where we met. Maybe when you CES? came to the Valley and it was probably around some sort of press event of some press kind. Press event. But you were, you've been sort of the king of that forever, correct? I mean, that, that you were like. I was more in that sort of mainstream years and years ago. I mean, so let's see. My first, my first Comdex was 1981. Comdex. Do you remember? Wow. Oh, but, yeah. But, and, and I think, do you remember the National Computer Conference? You probably No, know. I didn't. I got here in, got in the 90s is when I started. I started yeah. showing up for the internet stuff. So let's go back for you. Let's think about your career. How did you start in tech? What was your, because, well, you know, you, you're kind of think, thought of as the dean of, of tech, and you were one of the yeah. early people, and there weren't that many so covering it. So you can, you can look at that two different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say that I started as uh, Steve Jobs and Larry Page's paper boy, <laughs> because the homes they moved into in mm-hmm. Palo Alto, mm-hmm. I delivered papers to before wow. they lived. Wow. Lived I like to say there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> But really, I, I dropped out of a graduate program in sociology. I grew up in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. but then I came back here in 77 after I dropped out of school. Which wasn't the center of tech at the time, correct? Well, it, was, it, it was named Silicon Valley in 73. Mm-hmm. It was an aerospace center becoming right. – it was just – you know. so I showed up just when the personal computer industry began. Right. So that's so you you were going to be a sociology major? You going to be a sociologist? I was in graduate school in sociology. It's a long story. What were you going to study? Narcissist? Because you no, did a good job of um, that. anti-war organizing. Mm-hmm. I was there because it seemed like, you know, there was this branch point where I had to, I applied to Columbia Journalism School and mm-hmm. I applied to graduate school in sociology and I decided that graduate school in sociology would be more relevant. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I got there and I had a fellowship. Mm-hmm. And on my first day I realized it was a, vo- a vocational training program. And, but I had a fellowship. So right. I hung, hung around for four years and mm-hmm. then decided I really did want to be a reporter. I see. And had you been a reporter in high school? Or I ran my college, college paper. Where, which was? 
Whitman College pioneer. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And so you wanted to stay in that. But did you know you were going to get into tech? How did you move into tech? Well, so I came down here, and there was, you know, we were at the tail end of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And we had this aerospace defense industry in Silicon Valley. And I was very interested because of sort of my my background in understanding sort of technology in the military. So I started mm -hmm. writing about military technology. Matter of fact, a story I wrote for Pacific News Service in the Oh, 19th my God, Pacific News Service. Was the headline of that story is where the term Star Wars was coined for the SDI program. Right, yeah, yeah. So I, I was writing about stuff going on in Silicon Valley in the defense industry, mm -hmm. and then Reagan was elected ah, in yeah. 1980. And there was the dark side of the force and the light side of the force. And the mm -hmm. light side of the force were these little personal computers. And that was mm -hmm. much more fun. Mm -hmm. And so... Where was the first time you saw this? What was the... You just had you just dabbled in it because you were writing about defense? The f you mean the personal yeah. computer stuff? Mm -hmm. I had run, I had been started to go to the West Coast computer fairs mm -hmm. in the late 1970s. Which is where Jobs and Wozniak. Yeah, I missed the first one, mm -hmm. so where they rolled it out. But I was, I was around going to those kinds of things. And I was going to homebrew. Mm-hmm. I was going to homebrew meetings. The Homebrew Computer Club is what the PC industry grew out of. Right. And I probably 78, 79, I started going to those meetings because as a reporter, all the engineers were there, mm -hmm. and they were all telling stories, and you could just show up. And they'd and tell you yeah, things. You'd, you'd hear them talk about it. Sourcing. Sourcing. Well, they had this – it was sourcing. It was early sourcing, but they had this – part of the meeting that was called the random access period and guys from different companies would stand up and talk about rumors and mm -hmm. it was like just a free fire zone right which is perfect yeah. oh that's fantastic yeah. Yeah. so what, how would you characterize that era and, and you were writing for who pacific news service well or? i started writing for pacific news service and freelancing for lots of lefty publications mm -hmm. but then in 81 mm -hmm. i was um i was hired by infoworld and mm -hmm. that was when infoworld became a weekly it, be, it had been the intelligent machine journal and it was started by the guy who started the west coast computer fair mm -hmm. jim warren he sold it to pat mcgovern right. international data corporation who made it into a giant made it into infoworld info and tried to make it but when i went there they were still trying to figure out whether they were whether they were sports illustrated or rolling stone because uh -huh, uh -huh. it was a it, you know it's not a typical industry it was right. like hobbyists and right. guys who were in it because they wanted to play with computers kids, not computer because kids. they wanted to be really rich guys right which so, is where they ended up. So, so, so you yeah. so you started covering it. And how did you get to the Times? Were you just writing about these things and they said this computer thing sounds interesting? Or No, I owe my job at the New York Times to my ex-wife, <laughs> Katie Hafner. Uh -huh. So I was at the San Francisco Examiner. I'd been there for three and a half years. Writing um, about tech still. Writing about Silicon Valley. Nascent tech. Will Hurst had taken over the Examiner. He wanted to improve the coverage of Silicon Valley. And he asked John Dvorak who he should hire. Mm-hmm. Mark said, hire Markov. And even though I didn't have a traditional journalism background, mm -hmm. I got in through the back door because the Mercury had been offering me a job as an editor of their personal computer section, but they wouldn't hire me as a reporter. Oh. And I didn't want to be an editor. Right. So this was my way in through the back door. Those were the days in journalism where you had to go to the Modesto B for five years. Right, yes, before I you remember those. Yeah, yeah, I tried so. to skip that as much yeah. as I could. What was the tone of tech here, though? It was wonkish, right? It was, it was still also a side light, or what, what well, so, launched it into something yeah, very interesting for people? Silicon Valley has always been multiple cultures, mm -hmm. and there were lots of little cultures even back then. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, the tone was there were these aerospace guys. Right. And then there were the hobbyists. Right. And then over at Stanford, there was an AI community back then. Mm -hmm. So there were little subcultures that were right. distinct into themselves, and you could fall into them. 
And the semiconductor industry, which was, you know, consumer-oriented mm-hmm. and very technical, was just starting back right, then. Right, right. Mm-hmm. What did you think of them? Because I remember when the Internet – see, I got – I was, came for the Internet more than what you did, yeah. which was the more technical yeah. uh, chips and things like that, which you wrote about for a long time. What was it that struck you why this would be an interesting industry to cover? Because you, you I remember that? thinking – when I came to the journal, when I was hired in 94 or 5, something like that, 5 maybe – one of the reporters who was in the media section said I was there to cover CB radio. And I said, no, no, I'm here to <laughs> cover the industry that's going to decimate media. Like I had had a sense, very strong sense happening. that this was going to be a big deal, the Internet part of it. Yeah. And I had no technical background at all. So what was the yeah, flashpoint so for you? A generation before, remember I was, my background was a social scientist. I was really <laughs> interested in the way technology affects society, just generally. Mm-hmm. And I read this book. I'm forgetting the author's name now. But the book was called The Micro Millennium. And it was written by a British wow, guy. I wouldn't pick that up. 1970s, mm-hmm. and he just walked through in a really prophetic way how the emergence of the microprocessor was going to transform society. Mm-hmm. So I, I looked at that, and and I you know it really kind of intrigued me because mm-hmm. he had he was making really strong claims, mm-hmm. and I wrote this six part series for Pacific News Service on the impact of the microprocessor, yeah. and that was my my way in. Your so in. essentially, same assumption you made, but mm-hmm. one generation earlier about microprocessors. Yeah. So what was the tone of people then? I mean, you were up close and like I was up close and personal with Jeff Bezos when he had five yeah. employees. What was that like? That was so, Jobs and Gates and and Bob Noyce, Bob Noyce, right? yeah. a whole series of guys who were right out of the semiconductor industry. And the tone was, I mean, there were still archetypes. For example, right at the beginning, that whole model of one guy who just wants to explore the technology and one guy who sees the business there, the Jobs and Wozniak duality, that Mm -hmm. was true even back then. Mm -hmm. But there was a moment that I got Silicon Valley. Actually, it was probably 82 or 83. Mm -hmm. IBM PC had just come out. They got their own computer club. It was called Big Blue Computer Club, and they were meeting in Dyson uh, Auditorium in Sunnyvale. Mm -hmm. And I showed up at this meeting, and it's... This is Freeman Dyson. Remember? No, 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 Dyson, the, the, the disk drive, the, okay. I mean, the disk company, D-Y-S-A-N, oh, oh. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, you know, which was a big company back mm-hmm. then. And I showed up, and uh, it was all IBM PC guys, and mm-hmm. they had peripherals and add-in cards, and that mm-hmm. whole world was going on. And a Mercury reporter whose name was Evelyn Richards came. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And Evelyn, was, you know, she was a to tough cookie. and yeah, No, she went to the Post, remember? Post, maybe, yeah, she yeah. was to the Post. Um, but she was the Mercury then, and she actually stood up on stage and she interviewed like 300 guys in white shirts with pocket protectors. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's this is <laughs> that was still the culture back then. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, she said, um, she asked, um, "How many of you are planning on starting your own company?" Mm-hmm. And two thirds of the hands went up. And for me, that was the moment where I got Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought that if they had a an idea as good as Steve Jobs that they could start their own company. And, they, right. and there was the culture was already there, even though it was this button-down mm-hmm. traditional engineering mm-hmm. culture. Talk about the first time you met Jobs, because you wrote quite a bit about him and about Apple and the ups and downs oh, of it. Actually, it wasn't meeting him. The mm-hmm. fir- it's the first time I heard Steve Jobs. Okay. So I'd come to InfoWorld in 81 or 82, mm-hmm. and Paul Freiberger was another reporter who had been hired about three months before me, and he actually had the Apple beat. And he was about to break the story of the code names of the Macintosh and Lisa. And I remember this is before either of them had been introduced, mm-hmm. but he had stumbled across their code names. We were going to run the story. And I walked into his office, and he had this windowless office. 
and he held the phone away from his ear, and somebody was screaming at Jobs. him. And it was Steve Jobs, and Jobs was arguing that if we broke these code names, that the Japanese industry was going to be all over Apple, and they were going to destroy them. Mm -hmm. We ran the story anyway. Yeah, of course you did. And he screamed again, and then he'd like to scream at Walt a lot. Yeah. So you were there when the nascent, when they were small, and they were startups. What happened over those years, over the 80s especially? You had the ups and downs of Apple. It was pre-internet. People... What was the thought of what was going to happen then? Well, so this, let me let me go back. It's 85 to 88. That was the period when I left and went to the New York Times. Mm -hmm. How did you get there? Oh, I didn't tell you the mm -hmm. story. So the way I got there is um, has to do with the Wall Street Journal, actually. Mm -hmm. You'll enjoy this. Uh, the Times, Sanger was going to, David Sanger was going to Japan. And mm -hmm. the Times was going to replace our national computer writer, which mm -hmm. meant covering IBM back then. Mm -hmm. With um, somebody from the journalist, I'm remember, forgetting Paul's mm -hmm. name, but anyway, they were at the last moment they offered him an editing job and he turned them down. Hmm. Sanger was out the door, so the New York Times only has two speeds. Right, one is forever and the other is yesterday. <laughs> so they were in yesterday mode, uh -huh. and they called Andy Pollack, who was the said who's who's good, who's a good reporter in, in Silicon Valley. And, and Andy said, well, ask Katie Hafner. She's at the Business Week. She was mm -hmm. Silicon Valley reporter for Business Week. And mm -hmm. so they called Katie, and to her everlasting credit, she, and she hated covering technology. She mm -hmm. was so willing. Mm -hmm. She said, call John. Mm -hmm. And so Fred Anders, who was the business editor of the New York Times, called me, and I literally dropped the phone. Oh, wow. Because I thought, you know, you had to have gone to Princeton or Harvard right. yeah, or something to get to the New York Times. You did. Yeah. You did. But they were desperate. Right. And so I went back there. and, and What did hired. you think of that, working for a New York Times? Because this is right when mainstream media really started paying attention to yeah. this. What was well, the, the time, reason? The, you mean, what they was had a national computer reporter, but it wasn't, it was sort of a sidelight, if I remember. The technology, they, they had one person here, but Andy covered banking too, mm -hmm. and they had one person covering computing at that point, and, and they had one person, well, they had a personal computer columnist, Eric mm -hmm. sandberg Demend, mm -hmm. quirky guy, who's a good friend, and then they had a telecommunications writer who at that point was Calvin Sims. Right. Which was, but it was, yeah. technology coverage was broken down between like seven or eight right. industries, right. not right. about IT. So how did you look about wanting to cover it? Because you had a huge impact once you started. Yeah, so I, but I came back with a charter of IBM and whatever else I could get into, and mm -hmm. I showed up in April. My very first story for the New York Times was about computer viruses, which were a novel thing at that point. Yep, which but, became one of your specialties. Oh, it did, actually. And the, actually, there was this moment, which was the Morris worm. Mm -hmm. And the Morris worm was significant because it was, it was the first time the American public realized for both good and ill that there was this thing called a network and that it, was gonna have, it could have an impact on right. the world. Mm -hmm. The first day's story, which was a Thursday, the Washington Post had six bylines on their Morris worm story because mm -hmm. it... Remember, they still thought it was the ARPANET, and so they mm -hmm. thought that it might be an attack, a military attack, attack on right, the U.S., right, so right, it was right. a big deal. And what did you think of the Morris Worm? Well, the Morris, Long forgotten. Morris Worm made my career. Because? Well, because I was the one who determined who did it, and mm -hmm. the wonderful thing about Robert Morris, Robert mm -hmm. Tappan Morris, who was one of mm -hmm. the uh, you know, Y Combinator founders, mm -hmm. um, is that his dad was the chief scientist for the National Security Agency, which mm -hmm. made it a much better story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. Is that why you started writing about viruses? No, I had been into. Remember, I had no. I I'd been fascinated by you know. For me, there. Okay, so there, there was this period where everything I saw was life imitating art because I was reading cyberpunk fiction. Right. So there was Stevenson and there was mm -hmm. Gibson right. and there was Vinge. Right. 
And then I'd be reporting on stuff that the science fiction guys had already run down. Had already run down. Yeah, exactly. And, and Neil Stevenson. Neil Stevenson. Which is what's the, what's the book? So um, well, there's Snow Crash. Snow Crash, yeah, right. Where exactly. The premise is America only does two things well. Mm-hmm. One is write software and the other is deliver pizzas. <laughs> and here we are now. <laughs> What's changed? <laughs> Nothing. Um, so, so, you, so, but your premise to write at the Times was to do what? Because this is a general information newspaper versus. Yeah. So my premise was to. I was basically still in that sort of sociologist turned journalist. Mm-hmm. Sort of look at this technology is going to change the world, mm-hmm. and sort of the Times actually turned out to be very receptive to that. Mm-hmm. I would walk in and tell them about something, and their eyes would get wide. There was this wonderful moment. It was probably. 91. I was mm-hmm. just recently thinking about this. And Bill Gates mm-hmm. came to the editorial board right. to Right. We had to one him. of those meetings at the Post. Well, th- and this one, they said, well, how do you run your company? And he told them about something called email. Mm-hmm. What? You run mm-hmm. your company by email? Mm-hmm. And so that led to me writing an A1 story about how email was being used right. by, you know, right. totally predictable. <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs> All right. We're going to get back into some of the personalities when we get back. We're here with John Markoff, who is probably the most important tech writer of the last 20 years. Or was. Or was, now that he's retired from the New York Times. And we'll talk more when we get back. I was in Silicon Valley recently for a unique experience. I was one of the first people to meet Curry, a personal robot who is full of personality and does so much. It's a tiny little robot that is small and adorable, but it does a lot of things. First, it's a pleasure to have around. She understands when you talk to her and then responds in her own language of beeps, which you'll understand as you get to know her. Curry moves around all on her own. She'll learn the layout of your home, knows how to avoid obstacles like stairs and furniture, and she makes a great companion. Have her wake you up in the morning or greet you when you get home. She'll even follow you around playing this podcast, which I think is the most ideal use of a Curry. When you're not home, Curry can be your eyes and ears. She'll check on your kids and your pets. She'll investigate loud noises. Curry can show you what's happening right from your phone, so you can just stalk yourself. So check out Curry. She's available for pre-order now at heycurry.com. That's H-E-Y-K-U-R-I.com. Go to heycurry.com today. I'd also like to tell you about Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Hey, Kara, guess who I talked to? The freakishly smart Derek Thompson. He writes for The Atlantic. He has a new book called The Hitmakers. He told me how to make my podcast even more popular than it is. He explains the science and philosophy and psychology of what makes things popular in media. It's a brainy discussion, but I was still able to keep up, at least for part of it. Um, We also do a quiz where I ask uh, Derek about funny things, like what's popular and... uh, play some popular music for you as well there's a little explicit stuff so if you're one of the people who listens to this podcast with your kids you should turn it off at the very end thanks Kara. you can find recode media on itunes google play music or wherever you listen to your podcasts we are here with john markoff one of my favorite tech writers and who taught us all a thing or two about tech and we're talking about his long career he is just recently uh, retired from the New New York Times after 30 years. Is that right? 30 That's years? That's 28 and change. Right, but you were covering stuff before that. I was. Right, I right. Was. So talk a little bit about the personalities of the people, because now we all know the personalities, and they, they're sort of treated like celebrities. But at the time, same thing with the Internet people. You knew them when they weren't billionaires or when they weren't kings of industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of grew up with um, Gates and Jobs at all in that case, I, they were either going or just having gone public. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah. I mean, you know, and still small potatoes though. But Gates and Jobs, you know, who became icons. I, as a reporter, you must have had this. I'm, I'd be curious. So I love talking to Gates, even mm-hmm. though he 
you know, there were these intellectually banging arguments that you'd have, but it was totally not personal. It was very mm -hmm. intellectual. Mm -hmm. Jobs was my absolute hardest interview because it was always manipulative and personal. And mm -hmm. I just felt, I mean, I super respected what he did. Mm -hmm. I liked Steve. I hated interviewing him. Because he was, because he, he wanted his way. He was gaming you all the time. There was, mm -hmm. there really was a reality distortion field. Mm -hmm. Mostly he won. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a difficult situation because I felt like I couldn't, like, blow up the relationship. Right. And so he could jerk me around by right, that. Right, right. Because a lot of people did real sort of lick him up and down kind of stories. Like, yeah. you know, they were all, he was on his own cover and looking fantastic and giving you this great grin or whatever. So he would try to stay on message. I won a couple times. I got him to say that nobody read books anymore. Do you mm -hmm. remember that? Mm -hmm. That was that was yep. fun. He was not happy with that. Yeah. I got him to say that taking LSD was one of the two or three most significant things mm -hmm. that he'd done in his life. Something that his, even his wife couldn't share with him and the people mm -hmm. in the industry. And that was kind of kind of prevent. prevent. Yeah, yeah. But mostly he won. You know, mostly it was. Can you assess those two? Because we did the obviously the famous joint interview with them that was fantastic. And actually, there's a lot said there. My favorite moment is when he. When I asked what was the thing about the relationship nobody knew about and Jobs, who was always trying to pants Gates, went, well, we've been married for several years now. And, of course, <laughs> Gates was horrified. But it was so great. You, you saw him. Do, once in a while, yeah. He would do stuff like that all the time. It literally was like a high school back and forth. Um, yeah. Talk about their – because those were the two main figures of the 80s, really, of, the, of that era yeah, and, yeah. and into the who 90s. Else, who else? I'm trying who to Who else was of... important? Well, so there was, you know, the semiconductor guys. Grove was very important, and mm -hmm. he, Grove was I, Andy Grove. Andy Grove, um, mm -hmm. who you know had, had taken over. Bob Noyce had died, and, and Grove was fun because he had such a wonderful, you know, direct mm -hmm. personality. And he mm -hmm. was, and you know, we we fought those. I don't know if you remember this, but there was this period where there were, which was known as the Risk Wars, mm -hmm. where there was new architectures who were potentially right. a uh, threat to uh, Intel, and and you know I I was one of the the risk advocates, and he mm -hmm. he would just go after me on that, so it was great mm -hmm. fun. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, in the short term he was right. You know, basically the risk guys lost because they needed to be 10x faster to actually get in, and they were right. only 2x faster. Right, but the Irony is that now here we are, how many years later, and ARM is everywhere, which mm -hmm. is risk, which mm -hmm. is started by Apple. So there right. is some, right? Yeah. Some. So to talk about, so he's a figure, Andy Grove. Who else? Who else is is interesting? I'm, let's from see. The from days. the early days, personal computer. <laughs> Wasn't that? Well, Steve was around, but let's, some of the other companies, Adam Osborne. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that going too far back? No, go ahead. Um, yeah. Adam Osborne was a wonderful character. Um, you know, the sort of. I wouldn't explain for the people. Uh, so so he was British. He'd been growing up in India. He started as a writer. He wrote for uh, Infoworld, and then in the late 1970s, he was the first guy who came up with the notion of bundling software with computing. He came mm -hmm. out with this portable computer called the Osborne One that was wonderful for writers and everything. Mm -hmm. It was this crazy little machine with a five-inch screen and two floppy disks and mm -hmm. all the software you, you need, which included a database, a word processor, mm -hmm. a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm telecommunications program. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Freiberg ruined his back carrying one around because yeah. they, weighed, they weighed 40 pounds. And, and Adam, I had a K-Pro. Yeah, it was a, it was an Osborne clone before mm -hmm. Compact, right? Mm -hmm. Rod Canyon was another figure. But but Adam, uh, you know, Adam was just, it, it was an era, he was he was fun, he was boisterous, he was slightly pompous. Mm -hmm. um, he had these great little, there was a the beginning of this period of the, uh, the sort of the wars that you entered 
in the midst of, which was PC Forum. And, I mean, the the executive wars between different personalities. Right, absolutely, which continues to this day. To, yeah, of, of course. But at that point, it was a it was a clubby little family thing. Mitch mm-hmm. Kapoor was was one of the people in Lotus that world. Lotus One Two Three. Lotus One Two Three. Um, the Sun guys. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, Scott. The four, was Scott and uh, Bill Joy and mm-hmm. Vinod Kosla and. He was at Cisco, right? No, Vino was at Sun, and then he left to go to to, uh, Kleiner. So talk about the tone there. Did anyone realize what was about to happen when the Internet hit or not? Or it was just, uh, you know, everyone had computers and IBM or whatever in their home. Well, the world, world, including most of those corporations, were blindsided by the Internet, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody had an island, right? And they thought they would bring you into their island, and, right? You know, so Microsoft so, was the most dominant company at this uh, that, point. Why that, was right. that? Why did that happen? Talk about well, Gates. so uh, I just wanted to wonder. Microsoft discovered a choke point, and the choke point was the the A prompt, your disk drive prompt, which mm-hmm. was the access to your information, mm-hmm. and they controlled that and they mm-hmm. monetized it. And I've always thought it's ironic that really the only difference between the Google, um, dot, you know. Box. T- text box and the command part is you can make spelling errors with mm-hmm. the Google one. Right, you know? right, right. But basically, they both found choke points that they learned right, how to monetize. Right. And so there were these parallels. Was there the something movie. about Gates's personality that moved him to then get into trouble? Because that's where I sort of entered the picture at the Washington Post. Yeah, those guys were tremendously, you know, what would buy, bundle, or bury was mm-hmm. the sort right. of strategy of Microsoft. They mm-hmm. would either acquire you or, the, you know, you know, they would take you over, or they would destroy you, and they, and, you know, they they did a, a variety of anti-competitive things over a long period of time, and the industry took it up to the point where they went to Washington, and things got reset. Yeah, absolutely. Except that something else was coming down the pike. Right, which the n- internet nobody got, but nobody. Microsoft initially. Did you? Did you? Did you understand? Yeah, that's how I made my career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was a deep believer from reading. Um, you know, uh, Werner Vinge and mm-hmm. um, uh, Shockwave Rider um, mm-hmm. was was the first book. About, I mean, I, that was a, a book, Shockwave Rider, which was John Brunner, mm-hmm. argued for that kind of impact on society, that mm-hmm. the networks transformed everything. And how did it manifest itself in your coverage of the Times? Did the people of the Times understand uh, it? They let me go off and cover these new industries. I mean, I, I was responsible for the old old right. world, DEC and IBM. Yeah, they wanted DEC, world. they wanted Microsoft stories, and, the and then, Coast of course, kind of there was the, the trial itself, the Microsoft trial. And right, and by that time, we'd already expanded. I mean, you know, I started all by myself, but then, mm-hmm. this dates me, um, I came to Silicon Valley after being at the Times for four years mm-hmm. to, cut, to replace Andy Pollack, and Peter Lewis got this new beat called the Internet Beat mm-hmm. in 1992. So I mm-hmm. stopped covering the Internet in 1992. Right, right. Which is kind of... Yes, is, uh, <laughs> let me <laughs> get an opening for Kara Fisher. So but why didn't they see it? What was the part? I mean, you were interested in networks. I remember talking to you about it when I came here. Well, so um, for the same reason, it's the open versus closed uh, debate. Mm-hmm. These guys all believed in proprietary control. I mean, that's how they built their, right. their industries. That's Microsoft, IBM, to IBM they, Intel. They, Apple to this day, mm-hmm. right? Which is ironic that Apple was able to, to, to... Well, Apple was never as closed as they seem. If you look at the you know Mac OS, mm-hmm. half the lines of code in there are Berkeley Unix. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more open than you would think. But, yeah. but so the, the open world um, basically overwhelmed them. Right. Uh, and they didn't want it. They wanted. Why want was that? Why? Because I remember Gates finally wrote the road ahead, and it was yeah. sort of too little, too late kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, um, why was it that they resisted it? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is. I think this always happens when you're sitting on a monopoly mm-hmm. or you're sitting on an old architecture. You know, you, you have to eat your children. Nobody, nobody, even though they say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the wonderful thing about Microsoft 
I, I grew up with those guys, and I remember them saying, you know, we're never going to be as stupid as IBM. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and, and then when you look at what happened, they actually they, they did exactly the same stuff. Yeah. They made yeah. the same mistakes in the end, which is sort of rich. I'll never forget when the I, no, this is 10 years of the iPhone, I guess. I like guess when the iPod before that was introduced, we were in a meeting with Gates before one of our events, probably one of the first Code Conference, All Things D Conference. And he said, What is an iPod but a hard drive in a white box? Yeah. It's trivial. Exactly. And I don't know why I did this. I said, if it's so easy, why didn't you do it? Who is this girl? <laughs> he never quite got my name. Well, <laughs> the bomber um, reaction the same to the thing. iPhone was iPhone. one. It's, it's going to be a Harvard Business School study for. I know. I know. He's a character. I like a, our chances. I like our chances. $500. <laughs> who wants that thing? Wow, wow, wow. Um, that we'll get to the iPhone in a second in the next part, but yeah. but what who do you think really did get it among those companies, and what do you think the most significant moments of that internet shift were? Was it Netscape? Was it Yahoo? Was it um, there's well, so many companies? Clearly, AOL, Andreessen and Clark, and mm-hmm. a whole group of people. I mean, um, Mark cre- Andreessen, Jim Clark. I'm sorry, yeah, That's okay. uh, created Netscape, and they mm-hmm. took this idea out of the Na- National Center for Supercomputer Applications and turned it into a you know world changing event. Um, but then, you know, there was this wave that you came in that came immediately afterwards mm-hmm. where people realized that any to any was the most important n- new right. thing. Right. And, and that was the model. And they exploited it. Um, but Tim O'Reilly, you know, he, he set up the first commercial Internet website. Mm-hmm. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, he was he, he was. And, but then, you know, there was just a. How, how did that change your coverage? Because if you like this stuff, a lot of people felt that a lot of people didn't get the internet. Like I said, the people of the journal were like, what yeah. do you do? why did they hire well, this so, girl to cover this? Uh, it's, it's classic. December 7th, 1993, mm-hmm. I wrote the very first article. A day article. that will live in infamy. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the very first article on the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And, and you the, called it the World Wide Web. Right. Well, it was already called the world. No, I know, but you didn't do W. You just. No. I remember yeah. typing oh, yeah. oh, yes. so yeah, many yeah. times. Yeah. And but if you go back to that lead, it was a case of getting it all right and all wrong. So what was it? So the lead was think of it as a map to the buried treasures of the internet age. When I wrote buried treasures, I was thinking information. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it really was buried yeah, treasures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that was ninety three. In the next four years, I was run over like a Mack truck, Mm -hmm. right? I had this little world basically to myself, Mm -hmm. and then it became Main Street. It Mm -hmm. literally became Main Street in the space Mm -hmm. of four years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I left the Times, Steve Lohr, who who was my pal and colleague there, Mm -hmm. said, you know, that my my habit was anytime that money showed up, it was time for me to leave. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's what I feel like. It's still, I mean, I really... you know, it, it's it's much more fun being out on the edge, mm-hmm. and you know that that period that you rose mm-hmm. in it was just tough, tenacious sort of pack journalism. Right. And I I would, would much rather look out on the edge. You moved so, into cyber stuff, which I, now of I course I did is cyber, the thing. and then I left cyber just as it became a huge story. Right. right? Well, I left where in, are you going next? John? So in two th- well, if I had one more mm-hmm. time, I mean, I actually I, I actually left rather than doing this, but I, I would go into material science. I mean. Ah. You know, if I was a biologist, I would go into I would go into biological mm-hmm. science. But the material science stuff is so much fun, and there's mm-hmm. so much happening. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning explain for, well, regular, for the okay. So, for example, let me take one example. There is this uh, interesting new area which Nathan Mirvold, who was an ex Microsoft guy, has been mm-hmm. one of the first people to invest in um, in significant ways called metamaterials, mm-hmm. and these are synthetic materials that are based on the principle. So 15 years ago, this physicist discovered that you could bend light in the wrong direction. It, mm-hmm. it, it bends in one direction. And out of that, 
across the entire electron and magnetic spectrum, they're doing interesting things. New antennas, new radars, which, of course, will mm -hmm. play into self-driving cars. The coolest thing that I've seen is people are taking this idea and they're building structures under buildings that absorb earthquake waves. Huh. I mean, they're doing this. Right. Already, for example, one of the early commercial ideas is people are coating the windshields, the cockpit windows of, of jet planes uh, with this material that lasers bounce off the wrong way so they don't go into the eyes of the pilot. Oh, wow. So they're, you know, just... Every, all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Manipulating the, the world we know. We're going to get into the future and stuff like that. I want to finish up this section. When this happened, the internet thing happened, everyone became a celebrity, essentially. Yeah. What do you, how do I, you look at that? I, I, it's, I felt like Hollywood had moved north. Yeah. And it started, I think it actually started with the video game stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, Trip Hawkins, who was an yep. ex-Apple guy yep. who set up electronic arts. He was comparatively. But he had this idea that he was going to turn programmers into celebrities. Right. I mean, that was the heart yep. of his company. But it actually infected everyone. And, you know, I watched that. It became part of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And that was a foreign world to me. I, right. I saw it, but I was already... No, you didn't like it. No. I mean, yeah. But, but that's... Did it know. affect them? I was just with one, someone the other day, and I think I insulted them, and they kind of looked at me. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I knew you before you were a billionaire, <laughs> so I don't lick you up. And I'm, I forget. Like, <laughs> I knew you when you didn't have any money. And yeah. it was weird, because some of them get affected. Some of them don't. Not right. very many, right. but some of them became like if you're if you're told you're a genius every single day of your life, you start to believe God. that. So I was in the garage. This is you know stories that get mm -hmm. away. Yeah, um, I was in the garage in Willow Road with Larry and Sergey. Me too. And there were eight different search. Uh, there were sixteen different search engines at that point. Yep. I didn't even write about them. That was mm -hmm. one that really pissed me off. Yeah, yeah I did write about them. <laughs> I did. I liked them a lot. It was yeah. interesting. I came back and I thought this is different. Which is and it was Susan Wojcicki's garage. But don't you think, I mean, so, so why did they win? I think they won largely because they had the cleanest UI. I think it was better, yeah. I think it was easier. But did you know that they were better search? I mean, they were better search. No, but it, it was, was a better experience. It was a better it was I think, experience. I'll, well, yeah, I guess I felt like I did get, maybe you think you got better results or something like that. What I, I do recall is um, when they were on Yahoo, and I had seen, I had written about AOL supplanting Netscape, putting right. itself on the Netscape browser, if you remember... Or no, CompuServe and what was, who was they put ads, CompuServe and the one that was... The, all cluttered. I, right, ugly. all cluttered. And AOL did advertisements on their services. And I was like, why are the other services... They wanted advertising and wanted business. And of course, right. AOL made its business through that. And so when I saw uh, Google on Yahoo, I was like, oh, that's the same thing. And and I visited their headquarters and there was, there was a butcher block paper all around about growth of Google and... Google on Yahoo, which was growing enormously because mm -hmm. it was the search engine on Yahoo, which was the thing of the day. Yahoo, if you can believe it, was the thing of the day. I do remember. Yeah, you remember. And yeah. so you saw the growth of Google, and then you saw the growth of Google.com, which was bigger than the growth of Google on Yahoo. And I was like, and you could see it happening as it went. And I think I turned to Larry or Sergey. I said, do they know? And he, <laughs> they were like, no, they do not know. Do not tell them. <laughs> well, that was a really important yeah. thing. The, the lesson that I think the most important lesson that Eric gave Larry and Sergey, mm -hmm. is he'd had the Mooning the Giant experience from yep. Netscape where they, yeah. had, they had basically turned Microsoft toward them because right. they realized that that was where the money is. Mm -hmm. They hid the fact that they were doing what so were well doing. until Zachary and I wrote a piece in the Sunday mm -hmm. New York Times when they crossed a billion dollars. Yeah. 
and they were furious at us yep. for writing that story. Yeah, yeah. It was, I did call Jerry Yang immediately as I left, and I said, you better watch out for those two. Get them off of Yahoo immediately. And of course, Jerry's usually was like, oh, you're so negative, blah, blah, blah. And he didn't do it. But anyway, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time to watch it. When we get back, we're going to talk about what's going to happen in the future with tech and where it's going. I'm going to get some predictions from you, John Markoff. Materials, apparently, are it. Um, and also media. Where's the New York Times going? Where's Recode and everything else going? Yeah. We're here with John Markoff, retiree from the New York Times. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the growth API. Today, success as a media or commerce company requires you to take a data-driven approach across multiple screens. But doing that is hard. Legacy data platforms don't address modern data challenges, and SDK integrations are incredibly complex. MParticle is a simple and secure API, enabling you to connect easily to all of the leading marketing analytics and data warehousing tools in just minutes. The most forward-thinking brands such as Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, and Venmo all use MParticle to accelerate growth in a multi-screen world. Visit mparticle.com slash decode to learn about how mparticle can simplify your data supply chain and drive engagement, retention, and monetization. Again, that's mparticle.com slash decode. This podcast is also brought to you by GoCD, the on-premise open-source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track change from commit to deploy at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. We're here with John Markoff, one of my favorite tech writers, probably the best there has been for many decades. Talk to me about where things are going. Like you, you have had a long view of this and have focused on cyberspace. Let's talk about cyber yeah. attacks now, because this has been very significant yeah. in this election. Can you give us some real, a dose of reality, please? I, I, I mean, a dose of depression. You have, <laughs> I, just for me personally, I began. I think I wrote the very first story on cyber war for mm-hmm. Mother Jones in 1979, mm-hmm. and. You know, after covering it up until 2011 or 2012, I literally decided that if I had to write another story about a testosterone-poisoned teenager (laughs) with an attitude, I was going to have an aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And I walked away from what, you know, has Mm -hmm. become an even – it was already a great beat, an even bigger beat. And so I feel like I'm three years out of touch with the state of cybersecurity. Uh, but I don't see any reason for optimism. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, why is that? To explain why. Well, um, and put it in the context of yeah, this election. I think I think a lot of it has to do with um, on the internet. No one still knows you're a dog. I mm-hmm. think that anonymity Which is, is the old a famous, per, very famous and early New Yorker cartoon. But I th- I think identity and the fact that you disconnect identity from your internet identity has proved incredibly vexing for society. Mm-hmm. It played out in this election. It played out in Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a factor in both. I don't know if it, was the, if it was the deciding factor, but I actually, I actually do blame the internet. I mean, there was a certain point. I grew up with John Perry Barlow and his mm-hmm. manifesto in Wired, in which he argued that cyberspace would be this sort of Socratean abode yes, that was course. above the grimy politics of the world. And I, then I realized that was wrong. No, the grimy <laughs> politics has reached right up. And in fact, our tweeter-in-chief has taken advantage of yeah. it beautifully. Correct? Yeah, and so I, 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 at a certain point, I saw that the, the Internet is simply a reflection of all the good and the 
evil in the world. So what happens, say, with, with this hacking, with this? How do you reflect on the Times has done some amazing coverage of the hacking? Yeah, I mean, so what happened? I mean, what's striking to me is that, you know, what the science fiction world saw in the 80s and 90s has actually come to, to Meaning. pass. Meaning you know, the, the cyberpunk sensibility that, um, you know, there was a book written by Werner Vinge in early 1980s called True Names. And the basic premise of that was you had to basically hide your true name at all costs. It mm -hmm. was it was an insight into the world we're living in today. So what is basically. one to do? You either get hit by bullying on Twitter or you, every day there's some other fresh yeah. horror. Yeah, so the only, you know, I'm, I'm watching this like a huge train wreck like the rest of the rest of society. Let me just point back to the well. Mm -hmm. um, do you Which remember the well? early online community. Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly and some others created mm -hmm. this early online community, which in some ways was one of the first intentional virtual communities. Sure. I mean, there were other things like CompuServe and Source and Prodigy. They were around, but the well was, was a – they, um, from the outset, banned an anonymity. Mm -hmm. And I've I've had a debate with um, Mark Rotenberg, who runs the Electronic, Electronic Privacy Information Center, about anonymity. And you know, he defends anonymity on this traditional basis of mm -hmm. you know it's essential for democracy. And yet we have to figure it out some way. And I actually think that maybe we need to go to pseudonymity or something that you you, you know you you're going to participate in this network existence. You maybe you have to be, be connected to MeetSpace in some way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That might be a good step. But right. how do you do it? Well, even a site, a thing like, uh, not a site, uh, Facebook, there's not anonymity there, and it's starting to become a cesspool. Yeah, you're right. It's like the so, suburb suddenly has trash. And I keep yeah. saying that to them. I'm like, the suburbs <laughs> now have trash. You don't want the suburbs to have trash. No, it's a good, it's a good point that Facebook is grappling with this. Right, yeah. and, and they have promised their, you know, I, I had an interesting meeting with someone from a different company. They said their problem is they promised their readers they could put up this trash. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> You know, others like Google can take it down and yeah. nobody knows what Google does yeah. in the back. With, with, you know, they could manipulate all kinds of levers and they don't have a, they don't have a contract with their users. That they're not doing that. And, yeah. and Facebook has said you can put up anything you want. And if you can put up anything you want, you can put up a lot of crap. Yeah. Um, and how do you then decide what's – can you imagine putting up something and saying, do you read my thing? And Facebook has taken it down and – yeah. You know, it starts it's to become problematic on every level. Very, very so going problem. back, train wreck. It's a train wreck, John. Well, Michael. yeah, I'm not, I'm not very optimistic. What right will happen? <laughs> it will just become this horrible society that, well, like the okay. movie Network, um, or more like the Matrix. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to go backwards to television line. I, the, mm -hmm. one, the one thing that's interesting to me is none of these sort of realities we're in. We're in a particular mm -hmm. reality last for very long. Mm -hmm. I mean, this thing is still morphing. Mm -hmm. For example, you know, you talk about the future. One of the things that strikes me, you, we both commute, you walk downstairs, fully half the people on the street are, are walking. Yeah. That can't be the end of interface, mm -hmm. right? There has to be something right. after that. It'll be in front of you, right? Well, will, will it be? So yeah. I used to think that. When, right. I, when I went and saw Magic Leap, like you probably sure. said, I was so blown away. I actually now think that maybe it's going to be something whispering in your ear. Mm -hmm. but Just like she. Like it, her, 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 <laughs> she, it. her, which I, I think met of all the science fiction movies is absolutely interesting. The best it's one so funny. Seen. I met him, Spike Jones, on some <laughs> yacht at Cannes. And he was like, I really am eager to know what you think of my movie. And I was like, Meh. and he goes, what? And I go, eh, you could have been more creative where that goes. And he literally was like, what? 
was like, uh, <laughs> was this I was like Larry out? David. No, I had just seen it. It had just oh. come out. And he was explaining to me, he goes, that was amazing. And I was like, uh, <laughs> you know, I thought you could have gone, you went with a love story. Uh, All right. It's much more interesting than that. Well, I would take her over Ex Machina any day, even though Ex Machina, <laughs> you know, got all this. Robot. Yeah. So talk about that. Robots, you know, all these shows, humans, yeah. and there's so, all kinds of like sentient yeah, beings. Yeah, I just wrote a book about this, right? Yeah. And I came down on basically, uh, you know, I was part of that group, and I actually helped create the alarm about the impact on jobs. And I've come to a very different point. point oh, really? Of view. So this is AI and robots taking over everything, That's and, right. and drones over here That's and right. self-driving and cars. The singularity. Yeah. And first of all, let's dismiss the singularity. Okay. They aren't going to be thinking machines in your or my lifetime. All right. I'll, I'll say so that. we'll be dead. Thank God. We, yes. All right. Good. Okay. Not to say ever, but unless we're replaced by replicants. But go ahead. <laughs> well, the replicant question is: Well, the replicants are no, not in our lifetime. Okay. All right. However, um, what's the impact near term? And like, for example, Elon Musk makes the statement that he's going to be able to uh, summon his car from the opposite side of the country in 2018. That's not going to happen. I don't believe – here's what I've been saying. I've been going around the country because I was on a book tour Mm -hmm. and saying, if the Uber robot comes to my house in the Castro in 2025 and drives me to dinner in Palo Alto, I'm buying. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm going to lose that bet. Right. Okay? Because there's not only the technology challenge, there's the regulatory challenge. But here's what changed my mind. Just one story. I was totally into uh, robots are going to come to manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And and I was I was telling Danny Kahneman, the behavioral economist, this, mm-hmm. and making the argument they're going to come to China and they're going to lead to social disruption. Disruption, yes. And he stopped me and he said, you don't get it. He said, in China, they'll be lucky if the robots come just in time. And I said, excuse me? Meaning? And he walked me through the demographic situation in China, which is – There's not enough people. There are not enough people, particularly working age people. Mm-hmm. In the last year in China – the working age workforce declined by over 5 million people because oh. of the one-child policy. Mm-hmm. So, But that's not just China. That's Korea. That's Japan. Yeah. That's the United States. Not that's babies. Europe. The world is aging, and nobody gets it. Right, and except in places like the Mideast, which is except in Except in Africa, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that's Africa is still – but everywhere else, there's been this great demographic shift. Three points for the first time so last year. So we need the robots. We need the robots. And okay. particularly for two reasons. It seems like one, the beginning of a bad cyber <laughs> movie, but okay. On the one side, there are not enough workers, mm-hmm. okay, because the demographic trends are more important than the technological trends, and they're happening more quickly. On the other side, there's this thing called the dependency ratio, the ratio between caregivers and people who need care. For the first time last year, there were more people in the world who were over 65 than under 5, first mm-hmm. time ever in history. By the middle of the century, the number of people over 80 will double. By the end of the century, it will be up sevenfold globally. So Rod Brooks likes to say the self-driving car is going to be the first elder care robot. And oh, I actually think he that's might be true. So what happens then? That's why we need replicants, so we can download Kara's brain and you, put it into a so hot body. I don't go around asking about it. <laughs> you, I stopped you dead on that one, didn't I? <laughs> It's in your head. It may not happen in your lifetime. It will. So look at Elon's working on it for me. Elon, it may happen. Elon's an important important guy. No, I don't ask people when the self-driving car is coming. What I do is when I talk to roboticists, I say, tell me when there will be a robot that can safely give an aging human a shower. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we need in society Mm because there are not going to be enough human caregivers in China or the U.S. or anywhere else. And it really reframed the way I think about this. Right. I'm not saying that these technological changes aren't significant. I'm saying that the aging of society is the most significant. And also, thing the that's ones happening. that are here now, say that voted Trump and everything else, can we retrain them? Probably not, correct? Well, retrain them to do what? Exactly. That's the question. Yeah. That's the question. That, yeah. that, you know, so 
you know, in my last book, I saw this dichotomy between machines that replace humans and machines that extend the power of humans. And mm -hmm. that's been the basically the dichotomy in our industry ever since. This was going back to the very dawn of interactive computing in the early 1960s. Mm -hmm. McCarthy on one side of the in a lab at Stanford and, and Engelbart on the other. One wanted to replace human, one wanted to extend the people. The problem is when you augment humans, you need fewer humans. So it's right. not only a dichotomy, but it's a paradox. Right. And I don't particularly see so an augment, easy way. So augment, do you think we'll get, I mean, Elon did talk about that this year at Code, the, the neural networks well, the, and how AI is going to treat us like house cats. He loves that whole scenario. And then we moved into simulation. Okay. See, this is why I think her nailed it. Mm -hmm. If we have a singularity and we do have this intelligence explosion, the her outcome is much more likely than that they're going to want to eat us. No, no, they don't want to, they don't care. I was they're arguing this at a dinner party the other they're, day. They're That's what bored I said. With us. They're yeah. going to go off and do something interesting that we can't right. even conceive of. Right. Sorry. That was what I was arguing. I said, they don't, why would they want to kill yeah. us? We're not a problem. Like, <laughs> unless we start to be a problem and start pulling their plugs or making a mess, they, they don't yeah. want to. It's interesting how Hollywood always makes them malevolent, which I think is not so much. It's more like, well, who are you people? Like, and they don't think like humans. I think we always humanize these things. Yeah. All right, more, two more predictions, John. All right, all right. Materials. Well, so, okay, so if I had to say... Um, Robots who shower us. What's Go the ahead. most important sort of technological force on the horizon mm -hmm. today? It's, it's techniques like CRISPR. Mm -hmm. So there Spying are these the new gene editing, editing techniques. Um, and what CRISPR... That allows you to alter the any kind of genome, any kind of biological material with much more precision and much more effectively and, and much so more perfect quickly. people. Well, no disease. Think about that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean that. You know, even if we're not doing it, they're already doing experiments with that in China. Mm -hmm. They're going to be many countries that are exploring that. But the tools are. It's not just CRISPR. CRISPR was the first of a set of gen gene editing techniques that are going to allow you to basically do designer things, and so there'll be incredibly neat things. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Bump up the virus resistance of a potato uh, right. that's going on right now. And is that GMO? It gets into this very sure. murky area. So, you know, if I had to reinvent myself and I was going to, like, look for the next microprocessor, I, I would look in Look that, in there. In what world. about not dying? All the not dying stuff. Right now, I think a lot of Silicon people are getting older. And yeah. so they want to talk about not dying. Yeah, so life extension. Uh, life let's, extension. Let's forget about, let's talk about dying later. Mm -hmm. I, I think that might be realistically possible. I mean, you know, the problem is it's going in the wrong direction in our country as an average. Right, you know, that right. We peaked and now we'll have 130-year-olds. So, so right. maybe your billionaire friends will live a couple of years longer. But mm -hmm. you, you really got to go read uh, Gibson's book, Neuromancer, because, you know, part of the, yeah, re -read the it, winter, yeah. winter mute, they had these 300-year-old billionaires in orbit around the Earth. Right. And well, so, Elysium, oh, there's all those kind of yeah, things, those yeah. movies like that. Yeah. All right. So life extension, maybe. Printing maybe. livers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, organ replacement is pretty routine at this mm -hmm. point. I right. mean, body parts. Are, right. We're, we're bionic already. So that was one of the arguments. So if you augment the human, mm -hmm. uh, um, so, you know, this this notion of a, a cyborg. Mm -hmm. do, do you remember the Borg in Star Trek? Mm -hmm. Resistance is futile. futile. You all be, this is what I worry That's most. That's my of, hero. That's my other hero besides you. <laughs> but think about it. I mean, we have a generation of people who are taking their life instructions from the palm of their hand. The mm -hmm. kind of independence that our generation sure. has, they don't that think about that. a very them. salient point. You're right. So You know what I do now? Because I actually don't. You'd think I'd use my – I love my little phone. You know, it's the best relationship I've ever had. But <laughs> I don't do that when I walk down the street. And all I do is go, hey, hey, to people. Like, <laughs> look up. <laughs> like, 
like a crazy old and they're like, lady. Phil, they're like, well, I was yeah. like, you're crossing the street. Like, I just tried. You're saving it's lives. Well, you know, someone died on a corner. Of I know. Like, like, oh, my God, you got the weather, but you're dead. Like, kind of thing. To an editor of the New York Times. Yeah. You know? Oh, did it? Oh, I'm sorry. Jill. Now I feel bad. All right. I feel terrible. But I, I wish I was there to yell at her or anybody else. Because it's a really, it is a fascinating thing. It's like the relationship. Um, yeah. And sometimes I end speeches by go, I leave you to your own devices. And I mean that like, kind of thing. Um, all right. Last thing. Who are the most significant figures? I want your name. Five people besides John Markov. In what? Tech. Where? Oh, in tech? I mean, oh, my God. That's so who are the most? Give you five. I didn't give you so, one. So, yeah, this is this is hard. So Crappy interviewers would say one. Okay. So there's a generation of young AI people who are doing interesting things. Paul Socher went to Salesforce, I think, very highly. Of, and the re there's a reason why. Mm -hmm. You know, we've made rapid progress in some areas, but um, he has done interesting things in language understanding. And I actually think that that's going to have more impact than a lot of things when okay. we can actually have conversations right. with these machines. Five people who are... They can be in the past. Oh, my God. Let's see. Well, who are do, you remember, do you remember John Mazuris? I do not. Oh, you must. Well, tell um, me that. A company called MicroUnity. No. Which some people referred to as MicroLunacy at one point. But <laughs> uh -huh. it was the first, uh, one of the companies that tried to do sort of big things with set-top boxes. Remember when the set-top mm -hmm. box wars were happening? Mm -hmm. But John, I, what people don't really know is his company cratered. But before it cratered, he took, you know, north of three-quarters of a billion dollars away from the semiconductor industry because they'd borrowed his mm -hmm. instruction set. And he's been doing interesting investing in, in environmental areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, he went off in an entirely different area. Biochar, right. mm -hmm. um, new kinds of fertilizers. Mm -hmm. Five, I just ran into this company called Berkeley Lights that is really interesting. Oh, wait, I've heard of them. What are they They're doing? over there, and basically... People talk about light tweezers. These guys have created this platform that's a little bit uh, – both David Al and Moritz invent, invested mm -hmm. in this company. Mm -hmm. um, it's like a giant pachinko machine except it sorts cells. Oh, wow. And so the, the cancer guys, the anti-cancer guys, love love this because now immunotherapy – there, Are there pro-cancer guys? But okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the sugar industry. Yeah, you heard you're right. Fair point. <laughs> that's fair point. Fair point. Um, they love it. And the Berkeley scientist who did the early work was a guy Ming Wu. Um, and uh, so it's all bio. You're all like well, bio yeah. I've and gone off mind. into bio and material science and mind and, and computing. So if you forced me to say sort of, so this is this is why I must have been just good. I love Uber. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anything by that. So I was a total believer when I saw Magic Leap for a while mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, the the level of resolution and I, and mm -hmm. this notion. Their notion that they could kill the Asian display manufacturing industry mm -hmm. by basically, if you wanted a high-resolution screen, you could just hang it in the air. I, mm -hmm. I love that. And mm -hmm. I don't – will that – We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. But so it's not – so the thing that I found about reporting about Silicon Valley for a long time is mm -hmm. that the visionaries are always wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's about – that's the best thing about being a reporter. You don't have to be a visionary. You right. just have to take notes on right. what they're claiming and then right. remember that they were wrong. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot for final question. If you had to pick one person who's had the most impact over the historical – you don't, please don't go back to the 1700s. No, no I won't. Not allowed. Um, um, who would you say was the one person who had the most significant impact? So uh, um, this is central casting for me, but it's, it's a guy by the name of Douglas Engelbart, mm -hmm. um, who we know as the inventor of the mouse, but actually he was the one who had the original vision that became both personal computing and the Internet in the late 1950s. He did. 
He, he just died. He, he, relatively, relatively. He three or four years yeah, ago. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Relatively recent. And, and because he did that, because he had the vision of it. Yeah. Before I mean, anybody else. I mean, you know, and, and, and then those, those ideas went to Apple and Microsoft. But you meant to General Magic or something like that? Oh, he invented what? No, you thought, I'm just trying to think something. Okay. Well, so there was a there was a branch point. I'm really interested in that point of uh, so between you know so the iPhone 2007, the ideas that became the iPhone really started 20 years early. It did. There was this point where we went from the Dynabook, which was computing mm-hmm. in your lap, to a whole group of people at relatively the same time decided, hey, you can put computing in exactly. your pocket. And then it took 20 years for Steve yeah, to get it And they were all, right. if you start to look at the drawings, they're all similar. They're all similar. That's right. Pocket Crystal, mm-hmm. um, General, uh, Magic. General Magic, Newton, mm-hmm. um, uh, Pen Mac, and mm-hmm. uh, Swatch at Apple, Palm. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there were a whole set of people who set out at the same time. I call that Silicon Valley's greatest generation. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. They were the most creative. Yeah, yeah. But I forgot to ask this. This is my last question. What happens to a place like the New York Times? You've managed to get so, out before it died. <laughs> but I don't think the Times dies. No. Um, okay. But the question is, I, I watched it trying to get across the chasm. Mm-hmm. And the digital chasm we're talking about. Such as it is, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, I don't count them out yet. I mean, this, this, the narrative changes like every six months. Right. And, and this latest wave, you know, paper of resistance, right? Right. Which is richly ironic because they mm-hmm. tried all of these things, and then guess what happens? Good old fa- some old guy, good old, some well, old guy who can tweet is, is the best thing. <laughs> well, that's yeah, ever it happened to us. Time. Yeah, but good old fashioned reporting. Mm-hmm. Seem, people seem to be willing to, or enough people seem to be willing to pay mm-hmm. for it. So they're they're halfway across. And what about media in general? It's all her. She'll be telling us things, right? She so her. I, I think that before the reporting function dies, the editing function will be taken over by AIs. I mm-hmm. mean, we already have these systems that are creating, doing what editors do. Mm-hmm. Reporters, I think, will si- survive longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, remember that company called Narrative Science? That's no. the, was it oh, Narrative Science was the first AI, one of the AI first reporters. AI reporters. Yeah. And the problem was the news business is so bad that even the AIs couldn't <laughs> make <laughs> Oh, good. Let's put them out of business. So they had to pivot. Fuck those artificial intelligence. You let them try. Last question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Oh, so my major project is I'm becoming a biographer. Um, oh, I'm, wow. I'm working on a biography of Stuart Brand. The oh, guy wow. Who did the whole Earth catalog. Fantastic. So, well, good. So you'll still be around being bathed by your robots and stuff like that, right? Yeah, more or less. Good. Well, it's been a pleasure, John. As usual, Thanks. John, you are a legend. You are a hero to many, many journalists. And we hope you're not finished writing completely. No, no. I'll even show up in the Times occasionally. Okay, good. All right. Well, thank you very much, John Markoff. Um, It was great to have you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews that I've done with Rent the Runway CEO Jennifer Hyman, AliveCore CEO Vic Gondotra, and New York Times columnist Tom Friedman, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are on recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is, most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. 
AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business, from the smallest startups to the biggest global companies, create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn about how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build.